right? So we have James Pathakoukas, a columnist, economic policy analyst, and a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And you also run a substack entitled Faster Please, which is really focused on issues pertaining to progress, which obviously we are super interested. James, thanks for joining us. Ah, thanks a lot for having me on. I appreciate it. So you do something very unusual for a policy expert. So typically policy experts interested in economic growth, you're going to hear a lot of talk about tax levels, tax rates, GDP, government debt, and you talk about all of that, yet you're very interested in the tangible technologies that are driving human progress and the actual impact they're having on the real lives of people. So how did you end up with this uh, semi-monopoly on integrating kind of the wonkish side of policy with the real fascination with progress and innovation? Well, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm certainly interested in those things which uh, a lot of think tanks spend a good chunk of their time talking about. Uh, taxes, um, you know, deficits, uh, written a lot about that. Uh, but I, I suppose one explanation is I, uh, I'm somewhat tired of writing about that. I'm somewhat tired of writing about uh, tax rate, you know, perfect tax reforms that were they're going to bring us to a, a, a nirvana. Um, especially since we also just had a big tax reform in 2017, it seems sort of unlikely that we're going to have another really major one anytime soon. So, so there's sort of just a practical day to day of sort of what my uh, interests are. But I've sort of always and. And my interest sort of in taxes and these other things was really always about how they affected economic growth and technological progress. Did they help it? Did the incentives help? Did they hurt? So I was always looking even through those policies through sort of the lens of faster economic growth, faster rising human welfare. And obviously there's a lot more from the policy side and, that, and as you mentioned, the, thank you very much for mentioning the Faster Police newsletter. Uh, I don't pretend to be any sort of expert on, 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 on sort of the technology side of things, you know, exactly how technology is going to change. I'm interested certainly in, in sort of scenarios and possibilities. What I want to focus on is sort of creating as good an economic sort of environment for change to happen, for progress to happen. And hopefully it'll it'll go in a good direction uh, rather than us trying to direct it. So so I'm just trying to look at a lot of different policies uh, through that 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 lens of creating sort of uh, not to overdo it, sort of uh, a pro progress ecology. Well, then maybe even just speaking as a fan more than an expert, what areas of technology right now are really exciting to you personally? Whether or not you're necessarily predicting they'll be the biggest thing in ten years, but what kinds of things are you following that? like you would really like to see come to fruition or you think are coming to fruition? Well, what's interesting for a, uh, is I've been looking a lot and reading a lot uh, about sort of the, the classic post-war uh, futurists. And uh, it, it's sort of a phrase which, you know, people used to mock, you know, a lot of times they'll mock someone now if they call themselves a futurist. And the profession's changed a lot over the half uh, over the past half century, it used to be a profession where it was very much taken seriously by policymakers. Um, then, it, then it started not started not to be taken seriously by policymakers. They tended to be, uh, you know, overly gloomy. They tended to focus a lot of. They tend to become more sort of anti-capitalist, 
And then futurists became sort of almost like um, marketeers. They focused on certain these very narrow slices of the market trying to predict you know, what kinds of products or what fads would happen next. But if you read sort of those 19, late 50s, 1960s futurists, and that's um, everybody from Asimov, Clark, Herman Kahn, even Walt Disney, the kinds of technologies that they were assuming would be a, an important part of our lives today are kinds of the technologies that get me, that are that are getting me very interested today. Whether it is uh, you know CRISPR and sorts of genetic editing technologies, whether they're advances in, in energy, whether it's fusion or geothermal, and and heaven help me, I used to talk about things like space solar as kind of a kind of a kind of a fantasy technology. Well, you know maybe not. And also just, and also because of the, the huge uh, decline in launch costs, I've been doing a lot of work at AI, holding a lot of panels on, and on the future of a space economy, whether that's hopefully a lot more than just tourism. Hopefully it's everything from uh, a lot more people living and working in space, factories in space. Uh, so I've been doing, so that, that really, and that, that obviously was at the core of a lot of those uh, projections of a half century ago was that we would be very active in space, not just exploration, but living and working in space, and to be an important component uh, of our economy. So I guess that is uh, that is exciting and, and and a lot more exciting and a lot more important than I probably thought it would be five years ago. So I don't know about my my technology forecasts probably aren't very good, but that's that's I certainly find that very exciting. It was interesting. We were talking to Tyler Cowan a, a little while back about this, and he thought that you know the prospects of space are overrated. What do you think is, uh, part of my view is that you can't ever predict exactly what's going to become most valuable about a, an innovative uh, enterprise until it actually takes place. But just based on what's happening now and what speculations are, what do you think are kind of the most exciting prospects there that would actually not just be interesting scientifically, of which certainly I think there's a lot of fascinating things happening, but you know, boots on the ground, economic progress. Right. I think, and that, and that is exactly the question you just asked me is a question I always ask people sort of what will be the absolute, you know, killer application, you know, already there's forecasts and a lot of these are because of the satellite industry that it's going to be, you know, a trillion dollar economy. Well, what, you know, what's going to take it to a multi-trillion dollar economy? Is it going to be, uh, is it going to be, you know, tourism? Uh, is it going to be, you know, uh, manufacturing in space. Will we will we end up finding there are things we can only manufacture in space that will be highly valuable? So I think looking at it from sort of our side, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I absolutely don't know. But I think you make an excellent point is that it's almost impossible to know and you need a great deal of humility uh, about making a forecast that this will be the, the, uh, the, the killer app. I don't know. I'm excited to find out and I think it's an area of, of tremendous potential that we are actively pursuing in a way that I haven't seen in my lifetime. I don't know, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe it'll be a, tr a trillion dollars because of uh, uh, space internet and because of satellites and getting beyond that, getting that next trillion is gonna be really, really hard. Uh, but I think, it's, I, I think it's obviously a lot of people, and there's, there's, I mean, the market's sort of deciding this in a way. There's tons of startups. There's a lot of enthusiasm. Doesn't mean that will pay off. Certainly, we've seen other sectors where there's been a lot of enthusiasm, and maybe it didn't pay off, or maybe it did not pay off right away, but it paid off 20 years. I mean, obviously, the great example of that is the you know, the internet stock bubble 
which were lots of great ideas for things that people didn't know how big they would be. They thought they could be profitable, but the technology just wasn't there yet. Um, I mean, obviously, Uber wasn't the first company to think about ride sharing and using the internet, but the technology wasn't there yet. The bandwidth wasn't there yet. There were no, uh, we didn't have the smartphones yet. So I think maybe that's where you know we'll be at. So we'll we'll see if we have this conversation twenty years uh, now. I hope I hope there'll be a lot of killer apps. Yeah, I mean that's the nice thing about being an intellectual in this space is you get points for being early, whereas if you're an entrepreneur, you go broke being early. So there's a certain kind of tragedy that we get to take advantage but, but of. Also, there's not as many points taken away from you for uh, for being either for being late. You can be a fast follower, and you can even be wrong. The example I always love to give is: listen, I've been to I go to you know I'm in Washington D.C. and I have been to a lot of conferences with people who were in think tanks in the 1980s who wrote a lot of uh, white papers about the Japanese economy how we need to become just like Japan. Japan would become the biggest, most important economy in the world. Uh, they were not right, but it does not seem to have hurt uh, their ability to be invited in conferences, to conferences 30 and 40 years later. Yeah, I always kick myself a little bit because, I mean, TV producers really like you to make predictions. And I won't make predictions if I don't feel very confident that I know what I'm talking about. So I don't get as many TV invites as the people who are willing to make bold, wrong predictions. Number, I want a number and a date, but not both. That's the key. <laughs> All right. Just don't do both of those things. Where now, were you? 10 years go to 50,000. Just don't ask me when. Right. So I want to take a step back. I'm very interested in just your framework for thinking about economic progress and economic growth. And, but I want to start with a kind of wider question, which is it's unsurprisingly when people come to thinking about technology and innovation usually their policy preferences happen to coin the ones that they say will promote progress and growth happen to coincide with ones that they've held anyway. Um, certainly we're all vulnerable to that. How do you try to counteract your own uh, confirmation bias when you're approaching these things? Right. That, that's a good point. I mean, um, you know, I may, you know, maybe I think uh, lower taxes, especially lower tax on investment would be great uh, for innovation. Oh, that's that's something I've thought for uh, many, many years. Uh, I think sort of the, the, the way, I think it's just being very sort of data-driven and evidence-based and looking at sort of the research, where the research takes you. Um, I, think if you I think if you start there and make sure that is sort of thing that sort of governs uh, where you go, I, I, I think it I think it will I think it will help you avoid just falling into the same like you know again half dozen ideas that you would have had anyways. Um, I think the fact that my focus has always been on growth means there are there are certain policies that economists anyway all sort of always agree on are sort of good for uh, are good for growth like you know I've always been sort of pro immigration so. A lot more people here, that's good for growth. And a lot more smart people here, that's good for growth. So, then, so that, that sort of fit very, uh, very naturally for me. But again, I try, I try to look at uh, the evidence, um, uh, you know, not just as much as possible. That's where I sort of always begin is look, trying to look at economic research uh, to govern uh, sort of, you know, where I go. And so... How, what's your kind of mental model then for thinking about the the causes or let's say the main drivers of progress? Right. 
Well, I think it's, uh, I think the, the, the easy answer is um, it's, it's people, it's us, it's you and me, uh, not just us as sort of consumers and not just us as entrepreneurs uh, or, business, or people who run businesses, but people coming up with ideas and then making sure that we have a kind of policy environment that not only does the things that government is supposed to do, uh, the kind of po policy environment that allows people to have ideas, allows people to profit from their ideas, and allows people to continue to pursue those ideas, even if they're sort of disruptive to the existing order, to existing companies, to existing sort of political system. That's the, allowing that kind of disruption. But it really begins, uh, I think, with people having ideas and then making sure that those ideas can be sort of, those ideas can, can grow. Um, so I like people. I like there to be a lot of people. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not worried about too many people. I, I, I view uh, more people, more people coming up with good ideas, whether they're here or other places around the world. I mean, I'm glad you raised that because if you ask most people about their views on progress, like the last thing that pops to mind is population. And indeed, I think the general way we think about population, it, it tends to be, well, it's a problem or it's a negative. And the point you're stressing is it's people who are coming up with the ideas that are going to create all kinds of wealth and things that better human life. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to, do you see that there's like, I mean, we have an issue with where globally population is doing just fine, right? But in the countries that are really spearheading progress, there's a real uh, concern, I think, about the state of population. What are your thoughts on, you know, where countries like the U.S. and Western Europe are in 30 years? It's amazing how, how that idea that people are a problem, that uh, population is a problem, how persistent that idea and sort of invulnerable to counter evidence uh, that idea is. Um, uh, again, it's, it, it's, it, you know, it really stems from that sort of that you know, post-1960s kind of pessimistic turn, I think you know, partly driven by the rise of kind of the old-fashioned environmentalism movement. Uh, but I think that, I think that if, you, if you were going to be negative, about uh, about about growth, you would say, "Oh well, that's because we're, we're you know we're going to have stagnant populations. They tend to be older populations. They tend to be uh, less you know less innovative. Uh, there'll just be less fewer people than otherwise sort of come up uh, with the next big idea." So I think that's a very important. I think thinking about population, especially especially making sure that places which are it's 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 really almost the same with you know wanting our high productivity cities to be bigger. We actually want our high productivity economies to be bigger. So when someone comes here who is an entrepreneur, who has, who's a scientist, that's, that, sure, that's good for us, but that's also good for everybody else in the world because if they're coming to a place where they, which is, will make it easier for their ideas um, uh, uh, to be put into action, then, that, then the benefits will be to everybody in the world. So I love when people come here. I think the, the U.S. is still and could be better 
a great place for ideas to be cultivated and to germinate. Uh, so yeah, more Americans. Uh, I don't know if we need a billion Americans. I think the more Americans, the better. And we need to be a great, um, you know, a magnet, continue to be a great magnet for, for talent. If we're not, that's, uh, that, I think that's bad news. I mean, unfortunately, it seems to be a really unpopular view amongst people who are more free market leaning today. The immigration for the last decade, at least, has, I think, had a bad name. And I worry about, particularly if you look at Silicon Valley, where I think something like 50% of the entrepreneurs have been immigrants, where we're putting up barriers to that. I mean, if you played back the tape and said, what if we did that 30 years ago? Like the world would look a lot different and a lot worse. Right. Um, it, it, is, it, it is bizarre, uh, given that how important it is, uh, I think, for a variety of reasons, not just because they create good jobs. Uh, you, could, you could argue for national security reasons, for all sorts of reasons that the U.S. is on the technological frontier and how important it is. Uh, that we that smart people want to come here and be part of that and help push us push that frontier forward. That's sort of the um, and, and it's weird sort of how the immigration debate has progressed because initially it was sort of well we don't want people to come here uh, illegally. This is a but it's, it's almost a, it's almost a law enforcement uh, people respecting our laws kind of issues and then it sort of became uh, you know sure. If smart people want to come here legally, but even if low-skilled people come here illegally, we don't illegally, we illegally, we don't want them. So we really just want smart. Now it's like, well, maybe we don't want the smart people either, because they make it harder on our smart people. And they won't vote a certain way. And oh, and they're helping Silicon Valley. Now maybe we really don't like Silicon Valley because we don't like their politics. So it's a sort, I mean. I think there are few economists who are interested in growth and think growth is a good thing. So they're not degrowth economists or something who think growth is a good thing, who when you ask them for their 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 five point agenda, I mean, and I, you know, I have a podcast too, and I and by the end I'll say, hey, what, what's your five point agenda? I mean, it's very rare that immigration, especially high school immigration, but really immigration of all sorts, is not on that agenda. So I think it's very hard to say that you have an, you know, and, you know, at, you know, at a think tank, which is classified as center right. And I certainly talked to a lot of Republicans who to this day like to call themselves pro-growth. It's very hard to call yourself pro-growth and think, um, you know, immigrants, immigrants are a problem. That, that, that is just so fundamental uh, to, 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 to the American economy. Uh, to why we have a Silicon Valley to say like I think that's bad and I think in 1965 we should have kept immigration laws really tight and we should have kept the economy closed. Uh, I, I think it's very difficult to hold those two thoughts in your head being pro-growth and anti-immigration. Well, it raises a really interesting qu uh, question because the way you kind of described how you think about progress, which I'm very sympathetic to, indeed I would say I'm in agreement with, which is that it's people being able to put ideas into practice, benefit when they're successful, and be able to test out a lot of things, even if they're disruptive. If you put it that way, setting aside the degrowthers, very few people would object to that. And yet, that doesn't seem to be what we get. And in, when it comes to specific issues, that sort of falls by the wayside and other priorities get 
lifted to the forefront. What do you make of that kind of tension between something that seems um, almost obviously attractive? Yeah, we want people to be out there putting their ideas into practice and innovating and the actual policy landscape we're confronted with. Yeah, well, I, I think there are at least a couple of things going on. One, right. So it's sort of saying like, I am pre economic pro and technological progress. Uh, I know, I, you know, I, I, you know, that's really sort of, I like motherhood. I like apple pie. Uh, who, are, who are against any of those things? But then when a group thinks that that might impact them, well, I love it. I love it. But in this case, it goes too far. I mean, something like autonomous vehicles, boy, sort of what's not to like about not being, not having to spend your days if you're commuting, staring at someone's bumper, you know, 20 feet ahead of you for 45 minutes or being able to take a nap in a car or being less likely to die in your car. Seem to be a lot of obvious goods, but yet you'll have the Teamsters very worried that's going to replace their drivers. So then they'll lobby. So it's the classic case. You have the, the cost sort of narrowly defined and those people being very loud and active and the rest of us who will maybe benefit, benefit in a more diffuse way somewhere down the road, we're not paying as much attention. And it's the people who are paying attention right now because they're worried it's going to hurt maybe their union members in the near future uh, they, they are the ones really hard lobbying Congress. So again, a lot of things are great in the, in the broad perspective, but if they actually might affect you, even if you, th even, even if they might affect you in a positive way, if they'll change your life, I mean, a lot of people are just very change allergic and they would rather, you know, take the devil they know than, you know, than even the devil they don't, but even if it's something that good that might happen, they just don't want to take that. They don't want to take that risk. And then I, I think you have people who think, wait, hey, I love innovation, progress. You know, I, I want companies to invest. And they think it kind of just happens. And that no matter what Washington does, all the good stuff will continue to happen. That no matter how Washington regulates, no matter how Washington invests, no matter how Washington taxes, that all the stuff they like will still happen. That... Um, that all these you know, entrepreneurs will still invest, they'll still create big companies and hire lots of people. And there seems to be a, a disconnect to believing that those incentives or disincentives might have a big impact in the real world. I mean, I've, if, you, if you've talked to uh, members of Congress who, who might be on the, uh, on the furthest left, They'll still say, well, obviously, listen, I'm not against, I'm not against successful companies that, you know, as long as they're not harming the environment or something. Uh, but I but I believe in these other things. But they don't seem to connect how how other things they want may have a trade-off. So I think the lack, and you, I know you're very Don, you're very active on Twitter. So you, you kind of have an idea how how economics gets portrayed on Twitter. And and the and the criticism of quote unquote sort of econ 101 which is, are things like incentives matter, that, there, that in decisions there are trade-offs. Those ideas that there are incentives and trade-offs, unintended consequences, which seem to be sort of very basic theories, just don't seem to make an impact on a lot of policymakers, even though they think that should be like the first thing they should think about. It reminds me of, I think, a really profound point Peter Thiel makes 
and I might get his terminology backwards because it's a, it's a little vague, but he talks about the difference between definite optimism and indefinite optimism. Indefinite optimism is the idea of like, yeah, progress is going to happen. We just kind of sit back and it will happen automatically. And we don't have to go out there and make it happen. We don't have to be concerned with policies that are going to restrict it from happening. And he could, he contrasts it with definite optimism, which is we need to formulate a vision of the future we want to build. And then we have to go out and build it and we have to get rid of anything that prevents us from building it. And it reminds me of the point you made about the, um, the futurists in the 50s and 60s, right? It's they're painting a picture that's like inspiring and getting people you know, revved up to like, let's go build that and create that. And if you look at like, I listen to a lot of interviews with people in technology, people in the space program, and like often they'll cite, yeah, as a kid, I was really influenced by this science fiction writer. You've actually written about um, just the role that science fiction has played in past, you know, progress. And what are your thoughts on kind of what role it's playing now and could or should play in the future to kind of move us towards another round of definite optimism? Yeah, it's, it's a thing where I don't have a study that says it played an important role. All I have is all these entrepreneurs and technologists saying, boy, it really played an important role uh, inspiring me. So at some point, I have to believe that, yeah, it, you know, the kind of culture you have, particularly that aspect of the culture, which is painting an image of the future, is pretty important. Um, it's just like, you know, with your own career, like if you don't have some, it doesn't have to be specific. And that's why I tell my kids, you don't have to know exactly what you want to do, but you sort of want to prepare yourself to take advantages of opportunities and kind of see and kind of see where it takes you. But you have to have some sort of positive image of kind of where you want to go. And that, and and back, uh, back in those immediate post-war decades, you had sort of this beautiful synchronicity between actual technological progress uh, fast economic growth and a culture that was very supportive. So you had both the culture and the economy supporting each other. And you know, I, I've written, you know, I've written a few things. You just look at the kinds of. I mean, we, you mentioned Star Trek, which is kind of you know the classic example, which is also a really important example, especially when you have sort of the these you know these space billionaires, uh, you know, you know, you know, Bezos and Musk and other people in those, those sectors saying how inspired they were. Uh, people who were involved, you know, were creating the first smartphone, saying how inspired they were by just the flip phones on Star Trek. But more than the individual technologies, it was a belief that not just tomorrow could be better, but that you could make it better, that there were solutions to problems. And if you just sort of, you know, science the problem hard enough, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean you're going to create a utopia, but you could, but you can solve the big problems facing today. And then, and then you see what the next problem is. Then you solve that. And then you see what the next problem is. And then, then incrementally, year after year, decade after decade, you realize you've made quite a bit of progress. So I think, I think that's super important. And then we, I think we really did see that culture uh, you know, begin to change for a, a variety of reasons. Um, I think part of which it was, the, was, was sort of that late 50s, 1960s uh, environmental movement, where uh, not only did you, the futurist profession, uh, which went from being um, really, you know, painting those pictures and talking about the new technology, they became highly negative. The culture became highly negative. I mean, you know, there were just you know, a series of you know, movies and TV shows and books, all of which tend to focus a lot more, uh, not just on the you know, threat of nuclear annihilation, but then the you know, environmental catastrophe, 
Uh, and I, I think that that matters. I think it's very hard to move move forward as a society when people believe that you know it's, it's not going to be very good, that all these new technologies will just make our life worse, that robots will only mean we're all unemployed, that um, genetic editing will only mean that only the rich people will get it and then we'll all be their serfs, uh, that uh, space just means we'll be creating these space habitats for rich people and everybody else will be stuck on earth and we'll be really poor and fighting each other each other over scraps. Like if that's what you believe is a likely future and that's where you know progress leads us, well then maybe you don't really care about um, how much you invest in science or care about the impact of tax policy and innovation or care about um, if a regulation, regulation uh, makes it harder to build. Well, so what? Anything they build is going to be bad anyways and make our life worse. <clears throat> One of the guests we've had on is Jason Crawford from Roots of Progress, who's really focused on helping people understand the history of progress. And one of the things you see with history is that, yes, every technology does have negative side effects, but those negative side effects are overwhelmed by the positive benefits. And then we become better and better able, able to deal with those negative side effects. I mean, you could even take, you know, something like hydraulic fracturing where, you know, when it's first done, we don't have really an ability to control natural gas that's escaping very well and so on. And then they develop better and better mechanisms for capturing that and turning it into, you know, safe economic uses. So there's just this history of becoming able to deal with side effects. And so I've, I think, I think you're right that people kind of focus on the negatives and often there are real negatives, but what they reject or don't take into account is our ability to fix those as well, as long as we continue moving forward. I think that's, I mean, that's, I mean, technology, you know, technology bites back. That's fine. We should accept it. I don't think, and I, I doubt you are, that you're an utopian and think that we're just one breakthrough from all problems being solved, all of us living in perfect, you know, perfect harmony and perfect prosperity. That I don't think anyone who's interested in any of this stuff, that's what we're saying. But we're, what we're talking about is moving forward and making life better for more people, hopefully, hopefully all people. And any, any advance is probably going to have a downside. Uh, you're mentioning fracking. Well, now, now we're seeing, well, not only, did, not only did it make a hash of all those forecasts of sort of peak oil, which, you know, I remember when, during that sort of really peak oil craze about 10 to 15 years ago, you know, I remember reading blog posts that you would think by this point, like we would all literally be like, you know, have gone back to the farm and we would all be in agriculture trying to grow just enough food and no one would be traveling anymore. And that didn't happen. And then if that was, uh, if, 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 you know, the shell revolution helps us create like, you know, a, a geothermal power revolution. Well, I'm not, you know, that's what none of the critics are talking about. They'll then be talking about earthquakes or just the fact that it's still carbon emissions or they don't like fluids being pushed into the ground. Uh, there are problems, we solve the problem. We move forward, more problems, we solve that one, and we move forward. Unless, of course, you just don't want to move forward, then each of these problems looks like not just an insurmountable barrier, but a good reason to turn around. I want to pause on that just for a minute because I've kind of set aside the kind of degrowth view <clears throat> several times, but I do think it's a real view, not just in the kind of people who are explicitly saying we should have zero growth, but there's kind of a bias against it that I think is really prevalent. And what tends to give it plausibility, I think, is exactly this issue, which is that our activities 
do have side effects. You know, we can have a negative impact on our environment that we have to learn how to, you know, improve so that we can remain healthy and safe and so on. But that's, that gets entangled with the idea that the ideal is that we should never impact nature at all. And that anything we do is bound to come back and bite us that we can never actually solve problems. And it's all been, you know, the past 200 years has been kind of this short-term delusion that's unsustainable. What is your take on why a movement that on the face of it is saying something that should be terrifying, which is, you know, in a world where billions are still starving, we should stop improving. Um, What explains the fact that that is not a fully marginal viewpoint today? Well, it's, it's easier to see the, obviously, see the problems than to see the solutions to the problems. So you focus, or you, I think there's a kind of person who always will focus the kind of, you know, what, what is it in, beha- in behavioral economics that people feel sort of losses more intensely than, than if you gains? Maybe there's, you know, maybe a, there's, you know, that, that, that's part of it. You know, I'm not a psychologist. I think these are people who sort of deny also the amount of progress that's been made amazingly. Um, they'll also deny, they'll say that the pro, that it's really still been a, a zero-sum game, that all the progress sort of humanity's made, particularly the past 200 years, has only been at the expense of somebody, somebody else through um, you know, imperialism or exploitation of labor. Uh, I, so that view is also a lot more. I also say that view of sometimes people who don't, who uh, don't like the Federal Reserve, they'll say, well, all the progress since like 1913 has all been kind of inflated money and we're not really that better off. Is, uh, now you're speaking got- my language because I'm <laughs> I'm completely against the Federal Reserve and yet it drives me well, nuts. Right, when right, that- I assume you think we're better off than we were uh, 100 years ago. Right. Um, so, I, so, so I think there's some of that kind of thing going on. Um, and I, I, I think there's just a lot, I think just a lot of skepticism that we that progress can be made on a on a, on a plus basis. That it's not just going to be zero sum. That 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 the downside from the environment won't just you know overwhelm any of the positives. I think it's also you know it's also a case that when something go when something decided goes wrong, uh, there are people there who will start talking about it. They'll become active. They'll become activated. They'll become activists about it, and then that becomes their job. And then they become, uh, they, they move to Washington and they open up uh, something maybe on Connecticut Avenue, some offices, and, the, and those people never go away. Forever, they will be talking about that issue and that issue will never be solved for them. They'll always find a reason to say, well, it's not solved, now it's worse again. So, you, so there's sort of a built-in base in this country for people pointing out problems and they have a vested interest and those problems sort of never being solved. Uh, So I think that might be part of it as well. Yeah, I mean, this is a bit of an aside, but this is one warning I always give to people who want to have an intellectual career, which is obviously there's a great value in specialization, but you can really distort your own thinking when you're only looking at one issue and you become a champion of one issue. Like I saw, you know, people who were properly concerned with the threat of Islamic totalitarianism who saw you know, Islam, Islamism around every corner, the world was about to end, like, the, like it, they became really pessimistic. And I think a better example is kind of people who are concerned about, you know, some of these woke issues, 
and then that's all they see in the world. And, the, you know, the, the, they can't even see any positives and, you know, the, the country's about to end in two weeks. And so I think like, even if you're specialized, taking a wider view of like, where are we overall and how far have we come overall and how much is better the world overall? It doesn't mean to deny that there's real problems, but when we come myopic about them, I think it can distort our impression of the world, as you say. And then when people have a vested financial career interest and hammering home that this is a problem that forever remains unsolved, it can corrupt our whole view of how far we've come. Yeah, sometimes you have to accept, uh, you know, yes uh, from the world uh, as an answer that maybe maybe something uh, uh, something's improved. But you know, there's always I, I think about uh, you know like newsletters. You know, I said when I when I, when I started out, uh, newsletters were still a thing where people you people would buy investment newsletters that'd be mailed. And there were some letters which are, I mean, they were always bearish. Year after year, these newsletters were bearish. And I'm like, how can, you know, like, how can someone make money? Be, because there are people who want to hear that point of view. They, they want to know, okay, maybe I'm not bearish about, about the economy, about markets, but I want to know what that view is. If I was going to, what, what is the maximalist case for that view? Those people always uh, always had a market. So uh, some views you can always, there's always a market for those views, but that's not how I sort of want to live. I, I kind of want to look at the world around me. Uh, I want to see how it's changing. If I'm wrong, fine, I'll, uh, I'll change with it. And I'm interested in enough things that there's, you know, there, there's always something to analyze, always something to write about. So then going to that question, where do you think we actually are today? Um, and maybe you want to relate it. I know you've talked to Tyler about the great stagnation debate and kind of his thoughts. What's your take on, um, you know, the last 20 or 30 years and where we are at this moment in time? Well, given, given sort of how things often work out in a contrarian way, that you would think that just as a point where people have sort of given up, that people accept sort of the stagnation thesis and there's, you know, and there's different versions, that would be at the point that you would expect to, all of them to be wrong and that we'd be entering a period of, uh, uh, of acceleration, of faster progress, faster uh, productivity growth. And you know, maybe that is indeed uh, what's happening. Um, uh, you know, I, again, I don't know the G, necessarily the GDP impacts of what's going on with reusable rockets or what's going on with uh, um, you know, uh, uh, machine learning or something that seems sort of, you know, less sexy, but, it, you know, is important. Uh, people working from home and don't have to commute as much. All these things or, or businesses taking advantage uh, uh, of, of, uh, of a pandemic by becoming more uh, uh, digitized and not just, you know, whether, whether it's, you know, more Zoom or trying to put more technology in their businesses, all that together. I mean, I, I hope, <laughs> uh, I hope that means that, that we will look back a decade from now, it will be a period of acceleration, whether, whether they want to call it the new roaring 20s or the beginning of the roaring 21st century. I hope that it all adds up uh, something, but uh, I, I, I would hope policymakers, uh, one, uh, are encouraged enough to want to focus more on these issues and, and figure out how they can encourage them but also not take it for granted that what they do doesn't matter, that something, something has happened in the economy and it somehow because of the post-pandemic era and something with AI that's all gonna speed up, we don't have to do anything or, does, or we can't hurt it. Uh, first, sort of to do no harm, 
but then think about policy through the lens of will this make us more innovative? Will this imp improve human welfare? Well, I, I, I just don't get the people who wonder about, well, so what? what why? So I don't understand why, you, why you're concerned about technological progress. And this, and, and I realize sometimes we've talked about people on the left, but there is certainly an element on the right who view this as just disruptive, uh, disruptive to communities, um, disruptive individual workers who then now have to either have, they have to move or change jobs. Um, they don't like, you know, they don't like what their kids are seeing on computers or spending too much time on video games who just don't like any of this. So they're like, Wow, progress! What does what does that mean? Um, you know, better YouTube videos. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't see the value in it. Meanwhile, as you pointed out, you have uh, still lots of people living on very little money every day. You have people suffering from diseases in both poor countries and rich countries. Uh, you have not, not to mention we don't know kind of the amazing things we can create. Uh, in the future and to, and to not think about any of that and just focus, focus on, well, what is, what is, what is tech going to you know, really do for us? What, give us self-driving cars? I like cars, I like my paper truck, I like driving around, I enjoy that. Now you're gonna take that away from me? I mean, that, 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 that sort of anti, sort of anti-progress view, uh, that's, you can find that on, on either end of the political spectrum. Yeah, I'm glad you made that point. Um, Virginia Postral and the future and its enemies, really stress this, that opposition to progress is certainly can't be put in a, in a left-right prism. And that what you often see is a fusion between, I forget exactly what her terminology is, but you can think of more traditionalists who like, we don't want things to change. And then the kind of central planning mentality says, it'll change, but only when we say it will and how we say it will. And that there's kind of this united front against progress. But I also, this is the optimist in me, but I don't think I'm completely Pollyannish about it. Um, there's a flip side to that, which is I actually think that a shared um, excitement and commitment to progress is something that you can unite a lot of people from a diverse set of ideological backgrounds. Noah Smith, who's a left-leaning economist, I think has generally been very big on the importance of being pro-progress. He's been very uh, vociferous against the, the degrowth movement. And so I do think there, that we can, that there's this shared goal that a lot of people can, you know, we can debate how to get there. And, and I think there'll be important debates about how to get there, but at least there can be that shared goal that, yes, this is something we have to be all in on of how do we move ahead as quickly as possible, because it's so crucial to solving all of these problems that we face and achieving a lot of amazing things that we want to achieve. Yeah, I, uh, I think I think uh, you mentioned Noah Smith. I think there's a certain uh, group of people, sort of on the center left, that they've had a bit of it's been a bit of an eye opener lately because they I, I think you know they'll see areas of progress. They'll see things like you know SpaceX and Blue Origin, and they'll understand oh um, this isn't just about a billionaire space race who can get to who can get you know to orbit first. That there's like the potential for a real a vibrant space economy, or they'll see the uh, the big the big drop in in solar prices, or they'll see some interesting developments in advanced nuclear fusion. They'll be like, "Wow, there's a lot of stuff going on that there's that there's a way to deal potentially with climate change that isn't about us living 
you know, smaller lives. So this is exciting news. And then they'll see people maybe further to the left of them not be excited at all about any of that, who will dismiss, um, you know, uh, the advances in space travel as a billionaire space race, who, you know, will dismiss all these uh, other advances in energy and not be at all excited by them. They're like, well, what, what are we doing here? What's the, point? What's the point of this? Is the point ideally to create a, a, a more prosperous world or, are you, or is the point something else? And maybe I don't want to be a part of that. So I think, I hope that there's, a, that there's enough overlap and common ground that people who are interested in these things uh, can work together on them. So as we're wrapping up, I wanted to ask you about, uh, and I think you even raised this earlier, that kind of your view of Silicon Valley and in particular in the context where, you know, in a world where our Republican Democratic leaders agree on nothing except that we need to lay the smack down on Silicon Valley. Um, I mean, I'll just state the kind of briefest part of my view, which is like everything it's mixed and I don't necessarily love the politics that come out of there and so on. But I think that what they've added to our ability to live longer, healthier, happier lives is enormous. And that what they've done is fundamentally something to be admired. And then the culture of creation there is, I mean, is the best of America in many ways. And so I'm very disturbed by these attacks. What is your view of Silicon Valley and what the future holds? Imagine what our politics would be like if the most important search engine, online retailer, social media company, if the company uh, taking making, uh, turning space travel into a private sector venture, if all those were German and French companies right now. We forget this American decline, failed state, state stuff. Uh, they especially heard during the pandemic, that would be our, our politics would be utterly infected by that stuff. Uh, we, we should be glad we have them. Um, there are a, a dozen new white papers every day in Europe about their lack of being able to create uh, high impact startups, constantly talking about it. And obviously China is doing their best to create their own. So it's sort of, you don't appreciate what you have unless I guess uh, you don't have it. And you're right. That's, it's, a, it's a, sort of a weird um, area of agreement uh, on the left and uh, on left and right, Republicans, Democrats, both sort of have a different thesis about the actual problem, where people on the left sort of more traditionally, they're worried about their corporate power and, and it's bad for democracy. People on the right, it's more of a, they just don't like us and they're censoring us kind of and kind of issue. Uh, but I'm concerned that they, that they will come together and put together you know, bad regulations, bad antitrust, that will damage what is a part of America that still seems to work uh, pretty well. And yet it's a weird sort of dichotomy because they're worried about that, yet in this new bill going through Congress, uh, this R&D bill, they wanna create more regional tech clusters around America with the dream that maybe we'll have a bunch of Silicon Valley's around America. So there is an understanding of the essential value so much they would like to create more of them. I'm not sure, the, I'm not sure it's, that's gonna be very easy to do uh, from, from Washington, but um, uh, I, I think if we end up screwing this up, we'll be very sad on the other side of it. Well, given that 
yeah, you focus so much on policy. I don't want to finish without asking for your opinion. And um, what is the policy that most worries you in the near future? And what's one or two things that you really think are at least semi-realistic in the near future that would really help move us forward? Yeah. Semi-realistic well, politically is what I mean. Yeah. Um, I mean, I am, I mean, I am worried. Uh, I am worried about the immigration thing uh, quite a bit because no matter what the actual policy is, if people, if people sense that they're not welcome here. Uh, the culture is no longer welcoming, uh, um, uh, welcoming to them, even if, uh, you know, the, you know, the rules don't say the rules haven't changed. Immigration laws haven't changed, or maybe technically that makes it easier. If they believe this is no longer a welcoming country, I think that's bad. So I'm, I'm actually very worried about that. Since it's been so important. And, uh, if we're hoping that all these, uh, smart people from overseas will be replaced by better educated Americans, uh, maybe haven't looked at the progress of education reform in this country. That's also pretty sticky. So I am, I am super worried uh, about that. And, and, and I think I, I, on the plus side, I hope, I hope that when we think about sort of the geopolitical situation and, and people are very worried about China, China's rise, China's technology companies, that we will that that will be used as a good catalyst for us to decide that the way to sort of beat China is by is by out inventing them by using our traditional strengths as being a place where government does what it's does should do well what it's supposed to do uh, you know fun science but it also has a kind of environment where people uh, are encouraged. Uh, to start companies, to use that science and create fantastic companies and innovate and take that science to the next step. That that's what that makes me happy. That that pe that people we can we can use those we can use China as an excuse for those policies. Hey, we don't want to slash basic research spending. We should have more because of China. Uh, we want to, we don't want to ruin our big companies. China has big companies. We we don't and maybe they're about to ruin some of theirs. Uh, we want to make sure our we have these big successful technology we don't want to screw it up i just hope what we don't do is says well we need to follow the china model which means we'll need a lot more direction technology picking and and company favoring uh in washington so i hope that we can continue to do big things and if we have to use china as the excuse to do them great as long as those do those uh those those big things uh are are, are smart things um so i guess that's my answer james how can people follow your work and uh and Certainly, how can they sign up for your Substack? Oh, sign! Oh, yeah, sign, sign up and evangelize it. Uh, uh, the Substack is called Faster Please. Um, I am also uh, I also have a, uh, a, a column that pops up from week to week at theweek.com. You can go to AEI or the AEI Ideas blog, find my stuff. Though, um, uh, because it's fairly new, I will also doubly recommend the fast the Faster Please Substack. I am also on CNBC from time to time. All right. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, James. Thanks, Don.